Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that Right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. This is Victoria Lopash, one of the hosts for New Books Network. Today, uh, we are here with Dr. Jeannie Kim Watson, Professor of English and Comparative Literature at New York University. Hello, Dr. Watson, and uh, welcome to our channel. Hi, Victoria. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely, and thank you for agreeing to talk to us about your new book, Cold War Reckonings, Authoritarianism and Genres of Decolonization, published in 2021 by Forum University Press. And, you know, as, as always, I, will, I would like to start by getting to know you and your work better. And I was wondering whether you could tell us uh, how you came to this project, you know, what got you interested in Cold War studies, the genres of the, this period, and also the Cold War's presence in and the influence it had in um, East Asia and also Southeast. Asian countries. Yeah, thank you so much. Um, and, you know, I'm very happy to, to start with that question. Um, so I suppose one way to, to talk about the origins of the project, uh, just to go back to my first book, uh, The New Asian City, which was from 2011. Um, and in that book, I was trying to sort of understand a kind of configuration of, of post-coloniality in places like South Korea, Taiwan, and Singapore, where you sort of have colonial legacies, rapid industrialization, and anti-communism, which crystallized, you know, most sort of visibly in a in a really um, rapidly growing and transforming metropolis. Um, and and this is that was a regionalization that really came from economics, from you know the Asian tigers or the or the um, you know Asian miracles. Um, and, and that book, you know, it, it was partly drawing on my, um, my earlier training many, many moons ago in architecture, which was my first degree back in Australia. So I sort of came to that, I sort of came to the region and came to these, some of these questions really through built form and, um, and the city. Um, but, you know, through doing that project, I, you know, of course, uh, you know, was really interested in in the Cold War formation of these kind of economic miracles. And over the years, I, I sort of came to realise, you know, in the years sort of preparing for this project, that while, you know, people outside the region often are very familiar with, um, you know, with these sort of, um, you know, uh, developed Asian countries and, and more and more, you know, with, with K-pop and K-drama, you know, also cultural products, um, not many really understood the sort of histories of authoritarianism that went hand in hand with that kind of um, economic um, development, you know, and we can go back to, um, 
you know, the white terror period in Taiwan, Operation Cold Store in Singapore, uh, mass killings in Indonesia in 65, 66, uh, the Kwangju um, uprising and massacre in 1980, and the list could go on. And, and you know, what's, what's interesting is that these were all in countries that were staunch Western allies in the fight against the tyranny of the communist bloc. So, so part of me was interested in, you know, what does it mean to think about the residues and legacies of, of that political formation um, by looking at stories that hadn't been so often told about them? Um, so that's kind of one answer. I suppose the other part of the um, how did I come to the project question is is really personal background. Um, you know, I grew up in Australia. Um, my mother um, uh, is, is Korean and she was a, a child in Pyongyang in 1950 when the Korean War broke out. Uh, so she and her family were refugees. They moved, um, fled down to Busan and eventually settled in Seoul. Um, so that's sort of, you know, historical background of, of my family. My grandparents, you know, were um, lived in, you know, uh, what was then Choson, part of the um, Japanese empire, of course. Um, and in the, the 60s, my Australian father ended up going to South Korea um, to do volunteer work with the American Friends Service Committee, which is a, uh, a Quaker humanitarian organisation. Uh, and my mother was also volunteering there. So that's how they met. Um, but I, I found out many years later that my father had been initially drawn to the peninsula because he was so curious about the two different political systems, you know, dividing it. Um, he actually never made it to North Korea, um, you know, in, in that uh, adventure. But, uh, you know, sort of all to say the, this, the Cold War in Asia is sort of part of my family history. Um, and I think there's a curiosity there. Um, it wasn't until the late 90s after I finished um, my undergrad degrees in Australia and I was teaching in South Korea and I was I ended up in um, uh, teaching at Cheonnam National University in Gwangju um, in the, the southwestern provincial capital and I was really struck when I got there about um, you know how much this legacy of the authoritarian period the dictatorship period was still very much alive especially on a campus that had been so involved um, in the Kwangju uprising of 1980. Um, and so I think, you know, part of part of me in this book, I'm putting together um, some of those pieces, you know, from the first book and, and my own kind of curiosity. That's fascinating. And it's, it's so amazing. I've been always amazed and probably that's just a personal kind of, you know, way of, of being amazed by the world. But, you know, the, the way people traveled and the way curiosity is engendered and, you know, that leads to, to all of these encounters and discoveries of, of history of all sorts of um, people as well. So, you know, I think it's it's really for the lack of a better word, cool and fascinating. <laughs> and we're so lucky to have jobs where we can actually pursue some of those. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I'm, uh, I mean, you know, part of the, the interest I have for, for Cold War is also the, you know, and its legacies is also because, you know, of, of Romania's position in, um, you know, in it, uh, and the way in which it was non-aligned, but then it also had its own allegiances, and you know, um, that that whole region, Eastern Europe, is um, 
you know, I, from my perspective, is quite interesting to 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 look at and its connections it had with with Africa and also with Asia. Um, but you know, that is a it's a it's a topic we can we can get at uh, later on. Um, you know, but um, just to kind of get back on track, I will uh, say that the uh, book comprises of the introduction, five chapters uh, that are divided in two parts, and the epilogue. And in the introduction, uh, called uh, entitled "Ruling Like a Foreigner: Theorizing Quote Unquote Free World Authoritarianism in the Asia Pacific Cold War," um, the introduction gives us a very detailed and thought-provoking overview of the major arguments in the book. And on page three, we read that. Quote, focusing on East Asia and Southeast Asia. I'm sorry. Uh, focusing on East and Southeast Asia, this book tells us a new story about authoritarianism, the Cold War, and the global shift from colonialism to independent nation states. End of quote. And the work analyzes the different ways in which uh, Cold War decolonization took place and the twists and turns in countries who were highly influenced by this complex and multilateral process. And we see a strong focus on the congealed presence. Um, so to speak, of the Cold War in countries from this region and the phenomena it engendered. And here I was very curious to know more about what you meant by this idea of the congealed presence of the Cold War, specifically in Korea, the Philippines, Singapore, Indonesia, and Taiwan, and about the ways in which you conceptualize decolonization and post-colonial reality as represented in this plurivalent archive that you, you, you have in the book. Yeah, thank you, Veronica, for that um, great overview uh, and for the question. So, um, yeah, first of all, I'll just note that, you know, the book is about uh, the cultural production pre uh, predominantly um, from four sites, uh, Korea, the Philippines, Singapore and Indonesia, as, as you mentioned. You know, and these were all places that underwent significant periods of illiberal, illiberal or autocratic rule, um, you know, following the period of decolonization up until, in some cases, the late 1990s. Um, or if we want to think about Singapore, you know, it, the, the PAP dominance continues to this day. Um, so, so what do I mean by the congealed presence of the Cold War? Um, so we often think about the Cold War as something that is over and uh, that ended in, in either in 1989 or 91, depending on, you know, which marker you take to, to as the ending, you know, the Berlin Wall falling or the collapse of the Soviet Union. And by congealed presence, I'm, I'm trying to think of the way that um, social and political structures that were really shaped by the Cold War decades are still persisting in these sites. Um, uh, you know, and of course, one legacy are, are the afterlives of, of these anti-democratic structures um, that, you know, uh, really disciplined labour that, you know, arrested and imprisoned dissidents and leftists um, that cracked down on political opposition. Um, but I also, you know, want to keep in mind that these were also the ingredients um, of some of the most successful export-oriented world, uh, export-oriented um, economies of the, um, you know, the, the quote-unquote third world, as we used to call it, or, um, you know, perhaps the global south as, as the term today. Um, so I'm interested in this legacy of, of the developmental state as it's been theorised, you know, the state that uh, has prioritised economic growth in a militarised manner using anti-communist suppression um, as one of its main kind of um, planks 
of, of uh, governance uh, and that was often backed by the US in the forms of loans, investment, military support uh, and so on. Um, so I'm interested in thinking about, you know, how also we conceive of this uh, of, of this formation, this sort of messy formation that's, you know, on the one hand produced some of these um, gleaming um, beacons of, of um, successful third world development, but in a way that often obscures uh, and detracts, uh, sort of deflects from the authoritarian um, uh, character of that development as well. Um, so what the what's really key for the book is to try to think through autocratic developmentalism alongside decolonization or to think about them as a kind of uh, conjoined historical process um, you know that that really unfolded within a global order after World War II um, you know I'm interested I'm influenced by thinkers like um, um, uh, John Kelly and Martha Kaplan and also Christopher J. Lee, you know, who think about decolonization not merely as an exit, you know, when, you know, the country exits formal colonial rule or perhaps the exit of the colonizers themselves, but also as an entry, uh, an entry into a new world order that has its own um, uh, um, constraints um, and, and forces, um, you know, at play. Um so, so the book is 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 also influenced, um, and I talk about this right at the beginning of the introduction um, by an essay by David Scott, um, the you know, influential postcolonial critic and theorist, um, and it's an essay called "After Sovereignty" from the '90s, and in it he laments the way that the end of the Cold War sort of signals the end of a period of of third world non-aligned nation building. Um, so, of course, you know when you have Soviet Union and the Second World, uh, you know, no matter how flawed, uh, you know, those systems were, for the Third World, you at least had a kind of option, an alternative to uh, Western capitalist development, um, you know, which was which was largely associated with imperialism itself. Um, and so he's writing primarily from the perspectives of the Caribbean um, and and pointing out that the end of the Cold War is, is sort of this this moment when those other possibilities disappear. Um, but but I'm sort of arguing something quite different because in contrast I suggest that it's it's actually in in non-communist East and Southeast Asia and the places that I'm looking at in the book, it was actually Cold War bipolarity that contributed paradoxically to this economic growth and that actually gets celebrated and even becomes a model of development um, even even as it you know often misses the sort of authoritarian um, you know complexities of that nexus so the challenge conceptually and what I'm trying to lay out in the book is to think about uh, Cold War de- and decolonization together um, so it also means thinking about the post-colonial world not only in a vertical relationship between the colonizer and the formerly colonized um, but but in terms of what this new bipolar organization of the post-war war world uh, really meant you know what that entry into that world looked like and the violence that it often entailed um, so it also means you know we're thinking about the cold war uh, and I'm and I'm sure you know you're um, also familiar with with this Veronica but thinking about it much further beyond a kind of ideological standoff between the US and the Soviet Union, um, 
obviously when you're thinking about Asia Pacific and also other sites in the in the third world, you know, it wasn't a cold war, it was a very hot war. Um, you know, we had um, massive uh, wars and, and violence and, and millions of casualties, you know, in the Korean War, the Vietnam War, uh, and of course, lots of other instances of um, state violence. And, and that's also what I'm sort of interested in, in looking at in the book, what are the repercussions um, of those? Um, yeah, so that's so that's really kind of what I mean by the the congealed in terms of uh, as a developmental model um, for these sites in in non communist Asia. The Cold War actually is sort of baked in to that model of development, uh, and yet we forget that you know, and they become sort of models of of um, prosperity and development, often in contrast to Africa and Latin America, um, which, you know, quote unquote, are sort of underdeveloped. Um, and so I think it's really worth paying attention to, to what that what that means to have that sort of um, presence in that in that path. Absolutely. And, um, you know, you, you mentioned the, the, the developmental period and, you know, the, the model that brought about. Um, and I think, you know, if we're not thinking about decolonization as this exit, but also as an entry simultaneously sometimes, um, and, you know, we think about the ways in which the, the, the concept of transition from one thing to another um, has been theorized so far, I think that just opens up this, you know, like just a lot of questions, right? A series of questions about uh, the presence of the Cold War and what it meant to to have these um, processes of, you know, imperial uh, uh, presence, then post-colonial reality, then, you know, the conceptualization of decolonization as uh, something that happened um, at the same time as uh, some other processes with the addition of, of hot wars, as you mentioned. Um, and then, you know, we end up with this, um, you know, series of very, very important questions that will redefine, I think, um, some of the concepts we've been working on or archives that we've been looking at, um, maybe just from one perspective. Um, so, um, yeah, I just wanted to underline what uh, what you meant and just to say that it's, uh, it's a very important turn in, in the way we study um, things <laughs> so far. So <laughs> yeah, I'm just, uh, you know, rooting for the book here. I wanted to go to uh, part one uh, of the uh, of, of the book. And then, uh, you know, chapter one and chapter two are uh, housed in this part. And the chapters focus on clusters of theoretical aesthetic tropes, such as, um, and I'll open a quote here, freedom, decolonization, and alignment, then writerly freedom and the state, separation and futurity, exile and anachronism, and lastly, atrocity, justice, and the post-Cold War, end of quote from page four. And um, the, they, they span, right, over um, uh, a few decades. And in chapter one, entitled Writing Freedom from Bandung to Penn International, um, we see that there's the historical background that supports different types of conferences from the 1960s to the 1980s, where regional debates about decolonization and development took place. Um, and, you know, I just wanted to know more about um, the cultural and political dilemmas writers and conference participants dealt with and what kind of representation of the future emerged during this period. Yeah, thank you. And and I'm glad you mentioned the, the that those 
that, those, that set of theoretical aesthetic tropes uh, that you just mentioned, you know, freedom, decolonization, alignment, um, you know, separation of futurity and so on. Um, because when I talk about this book, I, I often think I sound like a, a kind of a pseudo historian or a very bad political scientist, <laughs> which is, which is uh, you know, not what I'm aiming to be. Um, but, but let me just, you know, say as a whole, the book, uh, you know, attempts to grasp this conjuncture that we were just talking about earlier, you know, the decolonization unfolding through or unfolding as the Cold War um, in terms of, of literary and cultural objects um, and, and the ways that, that, you know, artists and, and intellectuals have responded to the moment um, both, you know, during that period and also uh, in the second half of the book, you know, as a retrospective object. Um, so, you know, I try to think, in, you know, in sort of concrete ways about the different literary and filmic genres that I that they get that get used to uh, condense and work through some of these um, issues and, and problems. Um, so there's kind of a broader argument, and, and I also touch on that, you know, in the introduction of, that I'm making about uh, textual genres mediating a kind of genre of rule, uh, and I use that term from from Anne Stoller. Um, so, uh, you know, and I'll be talking about this, I'm sure, in a bit, but, you know, different chapters look at, you know, the building's roman or the dissident writer um, text. Um, and in this chapter, chapter one, which you brought up, um, yeah, I'm really thinking about the genre of the Cold War um, artists conference, you know, um, you know, in an age of uh, cultural diplomacy and, and so on. And there's been a lot of interesting work around that um, recently. So, so chapter one looks at uh, a set of conference proceedings from a series of 10 international sponsored Asian writers conference conferences um, and these took place in different Asian cities including Bangkok, Manila and Taipei as you mentioned from the um, from the 60s through the 80s uh, and it was really fascinating um, doing the research for this chapter um, looking back at these moments um, um, because I, I, the conversations that were going on at these conferences really encapsulate the complexities um, of, uh, of this of this period. You know, on the one hand, you have writers celebrating uh, a kind of, you know, the, the ability for new cultural flows and networks in a post-imperial world. Um, so in the early conferences, there are invocations of, you know, the, the great contributions that Asian literature is going to play now to world literature, um, as well as, you know, the new sense of interconnectedness um, made possible by, by being liberated from these colonial borders. Um, but on the other hand, there's, there's also a sense of the new boundaries and borders that are being drawn by the Cold War itself. Um, you know, and one thing that's noticeable is that this was largely, um, and with just a few exceptions, it, these were all writers drawn from non-communist Asia. They were from Hong Kong, South Korea, South Vietnam, Taiwan, Malaysia, Indonesia, Japan, and the Philippines. Um, they did have um, some participants from India, um, but no one from mainland China, um, North Korea, or North Vietnam. Um, so there's a sort of um, uneasy tension that, that I found really fascinating in these um, documents between both being sort of finally free from the fetters of colonialism, but at the same time negotiating a new set of boundaries um, and, um, 
uh, and divisions. Uh, and for some, you know, not surprisingly, you know, some of the um, Taiwanese and, and Hong Kong participants, anti-communism is itself the new threat, the new sort of existential threat that, that has to be grappled with. Um, but, but throughout, you know, there's also um, a lot of varied discussions um, about the problems of decolonizing nations on the terrain of literature, questions of literacy, of, of national publishing rates, multilingualism, um, the influence that's come from, from uh, Western models of, of literary style, um, um, you know, and, and, and in the role of literature, what role is literature going to play for the new post-colonial nation? You know, these some of the questions that were being raised. Um, there's a great quote by NMV Gonzalez, the, the Filipino writer, about um, uh, literature of the new nation, you know, having a role uh, in cutting away the drag of centuries. You know, I love that phrase. So this idea that, you know, they're entering this new um um, accelerated present, um, and they have to sort of, you know, modernize, um, catch up, um, get rid of this, you know, this drag of centuries. Um, but by the by the you know mid seventies and and definitely by the early eighties, um, I think what we're also seeing in these in these conversations um, is a is a sense of the creeping problem of authoritarianism itself, and this is partly partly a result of that kind of accelerated um, desire for development. You know, um, this sort of you know uh, as I talk about in in, uh, in the introduction a little bit, also this going through. Um, uh, Monica Popescu's work, um, you know, a kind of speeding up of time, um, you know, that was that was thought to be possible in this era, um, and and by these later conferences, you know, this authoritarianism is really you know showing its full colours in places like. Um, South Korea, Indonesia, the Philippines, and I'm talking again of, of non-communist authoritarianism. Um, so, you know, it's really interesting how the, the participants are negotiating this. Um, you know, in, in earlier conferences, um, it was unfreedom was, was squarely, you know, belonged to the communist world, um, and now there's this sort of creeping authoritarianism happening um, on the other side. Um, and, it, and it's interesting, especially at the 1981 Manila conference, I think in some ways that's the most interesting um, uh, material. You know, what you see there is that writers are now no longer simply as extolling the kind of new post-imperial cultural flows, you know, and this very much goes with Penn International and kind of, you know, freedom of expression, you know, literature across borders and, and things like that. Um, but, you know, now some of the participants are really diagnosing problems of, of structural inequality and also cultural imperialism that remains, you know, in the post-colonial period. You know, the problem that ideas and forms of culture are still being dictated and dominated by the West. Um, so one point you know they uh, a participant even raises the idea of what would it look like to have a kind of import substitution program at the cultural level right you know how do we encourage um you know how do we inculcate a, a, a culture and a literature that's adequate uh, to these problems of, of the post-colonial nation um so you know, I'll just say what what I really loved about working on this chapter is uh, you know it, it and it's different from the other chapters also because it's it's dealing with um, 
kind of effect, you know, uh, texts that uh, can represent these ephemeral conversations that otherwise wouldn't really get recorded. So you have in some of the some of the uh, uh, proceedings uh, also transcriptions of the discussions that follow the formal papers, which is quite interesting. You know, you also see lists of the outings that they went to, uh, the lunches that they had. You know, um, Chiang Kai Shek um, uh, and and uh, Madame Chang appearing at the Taipei. A writers' conference, you know, at the at the closing banquet, you know, so so there's clearly also a lot of cultural diplomacy uh, and uh, Cold War cultural diplomacy happening here, um, and generically, you know, this is an interesting topic to work on. Uh, conferences themselves are sort of made up of many genres, of, you know, within them. Of course, you know, the presentations, you know, the discussion. Um, you also have resolutions, which I write a little bit about. I kind of think of the conference resolution as a cousin of the manifesto. You know, there's some sort of performative declaration of, of solidarity or, or future programming. Um so, so there are all sorts of um, really uh, fun and interesting things to, to work on in this chapter. Um, and, you know, as I said, it, it has, a, has a different texture from the other chapters that follow, but it also sets the ground, I think, in a really, um, um, you know, a kind of interesting way of, of what, these, what, what were the general debates going on in these, in these decades. Yeah, absolutely. And I have to say, I admired profoundly your patience of, uh, you know, going through these details and also bringing up in the conversation the, the, the genre of the conference. And, you know, as you said, the resolutions, the conversations and, and everything that, that, that happened at these conferences, because indeed, it opens up the possibility of further research and for conversation about these, these documents. Although, maybe they're not present at all of the conferences um, that happened during this this period. So it is a bit different, but it's very, very interesting, I would say. And uh, hopefully we'll get more writing <laughs> on it, um, you know. And um, as you mentioned, the, the, chap- the next chapters, right, are, are a bit different. Um, but, you know, of course, they continue the, the, the argument. And in chapter two, entitled In the Shadow of Solzhenitsyn, Pramudia Anantatur, Kim Chiha Nin. Ninochka, Roska, and Cold War Critique, we learn about three important figures from South Korea, Indonesia, and the Philippines who challenged the tenets of the so-called dissident literature from the third world. And, you know, um, I was wondering whether um, we could get a bit more about each author and the ways of theorizing authoritarianism that they did. Of course, the chapter does this at length, but, you know, um, you know kind of giving our listeners a bit more, more details. <laughs> Sure, absolutely. Yeah, so so this chapter started um, started out when I noticed something that kept recurring when I was doing research on these these three figures: Pramudia Anantatoa from Indonesia, Kim Ji Ha from South Korea, and Ninochka Roska from the Philippines. Um, and what it was, I was looking back at some of the uh, the public press around their imprisonments in the sixties and seventies, and I noticed these. Uh, repeated phrases describing Pramudia as the Indonesian Solzhenitsyn and Kim Ji-ha as the Korean Solzhenitsyn. I know I'm pronouncing that probably terribly, um, uh, the Russian name. But so so I begin the chapter by asking, you know, what it means to read dissident writers from these sites in Asia through the lens of Soviet 
uh, totalitarianism or, you know, or the, the Soviet gulags. That is through communist authoritarianism and through those tropes and signifiers that go along with it. So, you know, typically the police state, arbitrary imprisonment, uh, censorship, you know, um, against this this uh, sort of archetypal prisoner of conscience. Um, because what, what you have, and I think which was sort of curious, was a sort of endless this was in the Western press, um, you know, a collapsing of second world and third world authoritarianisms. Um, so, you know, I, I, I sort of started by um, thinking about, you know, these representations and, and what does that mean and, and how do we read, what does it mean to read a, a text through a, the category of dissident literature? Um, and and what I what I try to do in the, in the chapter is really look closely at the literature to show how, the three authors are actually doing something really quite different, um, you know, more than simply pointing out, uh, you know, the illiberalism, um, the, you know, uh, police repression and so on of these regimes. Instead, I think they're all really deeply interested in theorising the recursiveness or what I call the recursiveness of colonial authoritarianism. That is, how is it that elements of the colonial state uh, and its disciplinary mechanisms are getting reproduced and reconstituted in this, you know, in their contemporary moment, you know, whether in the 60s and 70s and 80s. Um, and how do the literary forms themselves carry that, that kind of critique? Um, so let me let me just briefly say a little bit about each author to try and, you know, flash that out a little bit. Um, so uh, Pramudia, um, of course, you know, in, in the... Um, uh, incredibly uh, important Indonesian author uh, of the uh, the Buru Quartet, uh, a, a series of four historical novels set in the colonial Dutch East Indies. Um, uh, and, of course, uh, he was uh, imprisoned by the Suharto regime uh, from 1965 to 79 um, for much of it on, on while he was on Buru um, Buru Island, which is which gives the cortex uh, its name, um, and the the novels were famously composed um, orally because he had no pen and paper, um, and then later on published. Um, and in the chapter, I actually look at his last. Uh, novel from the quartet, um, House of Glass, or Rumakacha, and it's actually told, unlike the previous three, from the perspective um, of a policeman in the Dutch security state uh, who imprisons the hero of the series, and the hero is Minky, uh, who, um, you know, was a pioneering journalist. Um, he's also based on a, on a real character, you know, from the um, early uh, 20th century. Um, so Minky, like Pramudia is is imprisoned um, and basically off stage for, for, for most of that novel. Um, so on the one hand, the novel kind of seems to be asking to be read as an allegory of the Suharto moment, um, you know, set in the colonial period. Um, but I argue that it's actually much more complex. Um, you know, it's a, it's he's an incredibly skillful um, uh, narrator. It contains uh, framed narrations that stretch back to earlier colonial periods and sort of different moments of, of exploitation and um, uh, and repression. Um, but I think what Ramudi is most interested in ultimately is describing through the the narrative perspective of the policeman who has to deal with it all, uh, the kind of rise and the surge in political activism that, that happens in Minky's absence. 
So I argue that Pramudia doesn't really conform to the sort of typical signifiers of the dissident writer, um, you know, facing off against a, a monolithic repressive state because he's actually interested in showing us the production and formation of political space itself um, and, you know, and it's very uh, sort of the proliferation of beginnings that, that we see in that moment. Um, for Kim Ji Ha, Kim Ji Ha is also, um, um, you know, a kind of a towering figure uh, in in South Korean literary history. Uh, he was um, in and out of jail from the late 60s through the 70s. Um, he was tortured and, and famously sentenced to death at one point by the Park Chung-hee regime. And this was for his uh, scathing satires of the of the government and of the dictatorship. Uh, most famously, um, his, probably his most famous um, poem, Five Bandits, or Ojok, uh, was published in 1970. Um and it's, it's known um, primarily for these withering satires of the of figures of the, uh, the Park Chung-hee dictatorship, you know, the, the military general and the assemblyman and so on. Um, it's a long narrative poem, uh, draws from the traditional um, folk opera style of pansori. Um, uh, but again, you know, what was really interesting to me is that I think the poem, it's not just a, a satire of a repressive government, but it's actually theorising uh, the renewal of autocratic rule uh, by placing Korea both in its historical context, so Japanese colonialism, um, the division that occurs on the peninsula, um, and also uh, South Korea as a site of violent Cold War modernization under Park Jung-hee. So, you know, his poem is actually really full of um, the, the ways that a kind of transnational capitalist regime uh, is what uh, is 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 actually uh, most producing suffering, you know, in in the citizenry. Um, so I think, you know, again, what's interesting, you know, by labeling him as the Korean Solzhenitsyn, you know, we miss, uh, I think, what's really a, a trenchant material critique of uh, post-colonial capitalist accumulation that that um, Kim Ji Ha is is presenting. Uh, and then finally, Ninochka Roska, uh, she she never got the same amount of press uh, as the other two. Um, partly, you know, she was imprisoned for a much shorter time. Um, she was arrested in 1972 in a, in a massive media purge by the Marcos state. Uh, and she wrote her novel State of War while in exile in the US, but sketches of the some of the characters and storylines actually appeared much earlier in a short story collection um, that itself was uh, composed while she was detained in uh, Camp Crane, uh, one of the notorious um, prisons um, uh, in the Philippines. So, so again, I'm trying to argue, you know, uh, the novel goes beyond merely being, you know, um, uh, a vehicle to decry a kind of, you know, monolithic understanding of, of dictatorship or repression. Um, and it has a really interesting hybrid form. Uh, it's in three parts. The first part and the third part uh, detail a, a very short period of time, kind of um, the underground anti-Marcos uh, movement. Um, uh, but in the middle of the novel, there's a 200-page kind of historical section or historical narrative which reaches right back to the Spanish colonial period and then kind of brings you forward through the American period, um, through the Japanese occupation, um, uh, and the Hook uprising and uh, counterinsurgency 
campaigns after that. So, so what I, you know, what I try to think through there is is the way uh, Rosker is again complicating a kind of easy notion or easy or sort of a liberal notion of the artist of consciousness simply standing up against, you know, a monolithic totalitarian state, um, you know, as if that is the point of, of the literature, but, but rather, you know, showing us the, the complexities, uh, the genealogies of, of colonial, religious, gendered authorities and how they sort of interlock and, and overlap um, into the present Marcos moment. Um, and, and I, you know, one of the ways I, I, I try to sort of theorise this chapter is um, I, I, I also draw on Joseph Slaughter's work where he looks at uh, the early amnesty campaigns um, and the way that they were framed, um, as he describes it, often as a two-person drama, meaning, you know, the, the individual artist of conscience um, versus the state. And, and I think what all three authors do and why, they, why they're why they so interesting for us uh, is they really move beyond that two-person drama um, to, to, to sort of unpack the complexities of this Cold War authoritarian moment, um, you know, uh, and really expand our thinking of what dissident literature can do. You know, it can really produce um, material critiques of uh, this particular formation of um, capitalist accumulation. For sure. And um, I, for one, was fascinated by the, the genre and the ways in which it, you know, the, the accumulation of, of, of genres and also, right, um, like your take on, on Slaughter's position as well. So that it was very, very um, informative and also extremely important in terms of, you know, its synthesis, the way the, the chapter synthesizes what the, the three authors um, are trying to, to achieve and present, right? Not just, as you said, a the man against the, the system, but also or the woman against the system, but, you know, just to unpack all these um, undercurrents, right, that are so, so important to, to the entire uh, picture. Yeah. And, um, yeah, sorry. Um, no, I was just <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. And, um, yeah, so, you know, if we're talking about genres, um, I think part two, right, called uh, Genres of Cold War Reckoning 1997 to 2017, um, actually, um, right, spends more time uh, on on this and examines, quote, how retrospective accounts of decolonization scrutinize anew the relationship between state violence, anti-communism, and developmentalism, end of quote from page 24. And in this manner, chapter three, uh, entitled Separate Futures, Our Times of South Asian, uh, Southeast Asian Decolonization, uh, brings to the four uh, Mohammed Latif's Mohammeds, Jeremy Tiang's, and Sonny Liu's work to explore how they formally and aesthetically engage with the past potentiality for the future, extant at the moment when decolonization began. And um, my question here would be, how do these writers work through such themes and how do they aesthetically navigate portrayals of state violence, anti-communism and independence, sometimes all, you know, in, in on one page or, you know, in, in a chapter? Yeah. Yeah, thank you, Veronica. So, yeah, as you as you just pointed out, you know these these three chapters um, going into the second half of the book uh, are, are looking retrospectively. You know, looking at texts that themselves look retro- retrospectively back at the Cold War, um, and and I guess you know this again goes back to that notion of the congealed Cold War that we were talking about earlier. Um, I also, you know, 
sort of realise that I think in the last sort of 20 years, this has been a period when writers and intellectuals have become really interested in looking back at the Cold War uh, to interrogate its relationship to the present. You know, in what ways does it live on or leak into our, uh, you know, current um, moment? Um, and one of the principal arguments of the book is that, um, and, and especially this chapter, is that Cold War liberalisms that were built on anti-communism in particular um, really really remain with us in in sort of these interesting ways and uncomfortable ways. Um, so chapter three is all about uh, these three novels, as you mentioned, that um, that look back at the fairly messy decolonization of Singapore and Malaya, um, largely narratives that focus on the period from, you know, about the mid-50s, um, you know, um, through the through the 60s, 70s um, primarily. Um, and uh, and to think about the way there were various uh, futures and potentialities, as you mentioned, that were opened up at that moment of decolonization, but ultimately were foreclosed by Cold War exigencies and um, security measures. Um, so I was interested, I was in this chapter, I was influenced by Gary Wilder's book, Freedom Time, um, and also by other thinkers of, of temporality, uh, like Reinhard Koselik, um, Bhakti Sringapura, uh, and Hannah Arendt. Um, and they helped me sort of think through decolonization as this kind of temporal opening, which, you know, in which you can imagine these, these various, um, you know, possibilities of, of, of the future. Um, but the, the three stories themselves um, in different ways, and they're all quite, you know, very different kinds of novels, but in different ways they, they all show this closing down of that um, moment of, of opening um, uh, through a, a sort of um, a focus on um, uh, individual growth. And that's why I, I, I sort of read them all as, as versions of Buildings Romana. Um, uh, they, they, you know, in a way they're approaching this question of the youth of the nation um, through uh, the problems of, you know, the, the, the youth, uh, you know, protagonist. Um, um but you know, this is a this is a version of the buildings Roman that doesn't quite work. Um, you know, you will recall, I'm sure listeners will recall in the original form of the European buildings Roman, you know, the novel of development or novel of education, uh, you have the eventual convergence of societal and personal goals. Um, you know, you follow the protagonist's, um, you know, moral development and adventures, but, you know, ultimately, you know, it usually sort of comes in line with, you know, the, the um, you know, his or her role in society. Um, so what I argue about, what I argue toward in this chapter is that uh, the, the decolonizing conjuncture and the Cold War really complicate these sort of narratives of uh, buildings Romana. Um because we see the way, especially in you know the security, the the, um, the use of security measures, um, uh, you know, like in Singapore, the use of uh, the um, Internal Security Act, which was of course developed by the British during the colonial period. Um, we see how the state reactivates the disciplinary functions um, of um, of colonialism 
typically also with um, sweeping arrests and um, detentions of of dissidents. Um, so I you know also I think um, the different novels all mention the 1963 Operation Cold Store, um, which I had mentioned earlier, um, which was basically a kind of um, purge of of leftists um, by the um, the the PAP government, um, but also uh, especially Jeremy Tiang's novel is interested in thinking about the long period of the Malayan emergency, um, you know, in which uh, to defeat the communists, the British basically, um, uh, you know, uh, turned large sections of Malaya uh, into uh, free fire zones, which required relocating much of the the, the peasant population um, into so-called new villages. Um, but what what this means for the different narratives is, uh, you know, what I try to get at is is a sense of, I guess, the um, the disappointments of an expected liberatory relationship to society and the state. So so you know, if post colonial if decolonization can be theorized as you know a departure of the colonizers and a kind of separation, it also offers a new uh, opportunity to to overcome that colonial alienation from the state. Um, and there's that, that you know in different ways the protagonists of these novels kind of imagine a futurity um, where you know society and the state have been transformed you know whether it's you know for Muhammad Latif Muhammad it's kind of um, you know a, a Muslim um, uh, uh, envisioning of, of the future um, for the Malayan Communist Party members in Jeremy Tiang's novel, um, it's of course a communist future. Um, but of course, what we see ultimately, you know, via these um, security measures uh, waged by the, the, the new post-colonial state, is instead again another reproduction of, of authoritarian state forms. Um, so. I think the chapter has a kind of melancholic feel to it, um, but nevertheless, um, you know, I, I, I think it's it's a these are all fascinating novels, uh, and I think they show us too that there's value in in going back to those futures past, to use Casalek's uh, phrase, in that they can also offer us, I think, resources for thinking about the ongoing project of decolonization. You know, not merely that it simply failed. Um, but what those energies looked like, you know, and what could be remaining of them today. And of course, you know, if I may add the um, the ways in which they still influence, right, the um, development today, and the ways in which in different parts of the world, but also in in the the, the in Southeast Asia and East Asia, how decolonization, you know, had legacies on um, you know the next step uh, stage of of uh, you know neoliberal capitalism implementation, or you know thinking about. Um, the nation, if we can, right today, even right in um, in, in times of, of of change and you know reshuffling of powers. Um, so you know, I think it could we could extend uh, your your conclusion to of the chapter um, even a bit a bit further. Um, if you know that's possible, but you know that's just my my own understanding. Um, and uh, you know, with that, I'll, I'll um, ask about chapter four, um, 
because uh, of course it, it continues the, the 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 idea and the the line of, of argument. Um, but you know, it goes and uh, and talks a little bit about uh, the uh, post Cold War genre, and uh, you know, it's it's entitled "The Wrong Side of History: Anachronism and Authoritarianism." And here uh, we see the the proposal of quote the poetics of anachronism as a defining post Cold War genre. End of quote. And um, you question the continuity between the discourse of Cold War anti-communism and the narrative about neoliberal accomplishments. And, you know, um, I was very intrigued by this and I was thinking, what are some of the most salient works of literature here and how do they negotiate such discontinuities? Hmm. Yeah, thank you. So so I think this chapter and chapter five sort of go together and that they, I think they're both doing similar work about sort of thinking of the continuities and discontinuities between, you know, Cold War and post-Cold War. Um, but here in this chapter, I, I identify anachronism as as one of the aesthetic solutions, if you like, of how to grapple with that embeddedness um, and how to how to represent it, um, you know, you know, in terms of a kind of uh, literary or, or filmic um, representations. So, you know, in contrast to the previous chapter, which looked kind of through the lens of youth and and development and the buildings remark, um, here I'm thinking about the figure of the aging political exile um, or political prisoner. Um, you know, as as a as a figure that sort of gets excluded from the post-colonial nation's uh, rush to modernization. Um, so we can sort of think of these figures as the uncomfortable remainders or the leftovers of, you know, the nation's kind of arrival into economic success. Um, and as I mentioned much earlier, you know, these Asian tigers were, you know, were so, were so lauded by modernization theory and, you know, held up as models. Um, so this chapter really focuses on um, South Korea and Singapore uh, with a text from each. Um, uh, the first one is Tan Pin Pin's wonderful documentary to Singapore Love. Um, I'm a huge fan of Tan Pin Pin. And this is just a, a beautiful film. It's told entirely from the perspective of aging Singaporeans who were forced to flee or who were exiled at different points in, you know, um, sort of the, the, the early post-colonial period of the country. Um, some are former Malayan Communist Party members um, who had to flee. Uh, some were student activists, um, also Chinese language proponents um, that were thought to be, you know, um, uh, outside the nation uh, and had to be removed. Um, others, uh, labor activists and, and human rights activists and so on. Um, you know, and what's great about the film is that the whole thing is is filmed outside Singapore, right? I think there's one very short scene that takes place in, in the airport, um, but everything else is, you know, interviews from people who are, um, you know, literally still exiled. Uh, and the second text uh, that I that I put together with that is Huang Sok Young's novel The Old Garden, uh, Ore Den Jongwon, uh, from 2000. Um, Huang Sok Young, you know, um, one of the probably best known uh, writers of, of South Korea. I mean, his his writing, I've written on him in a number of different contexts, but uh, you know, he's he's an amazing writer. This is a novel that follows really the fallout from the 1980 Gwangju uprising uh, and the and the period of um, John Duhuan's uh, military dictatorship in the in the early 80s. But it's told uh, retrospectively from around 
the year 2000 or, or the late 90s, uh, and it follows a, it follows a couple whose lives have been sort of really fractured and, and shaped by uh, a 20-year imprisonment of, um, of uh, the anti-dictatorship activist. Um, so what I, what I try to draw out by looking at um, Tan Pinpin and Hwang Sa-kyung together is the way that, you know, both of the texts are not only uh, giving us, a, you know, a really beautiful and textured sense of the, the, the personal losses and, and suffering, you know, due to illiberalism and, and dictatorship and specifically, you know, anti-communism. Um, but more interestingly, I think how these, there are sort of these anachronistic lives um, that live on in the present they're, and they're unresolved components of our post-Cold War moment. Uh, so, you know, they, they sort of exist as kind of living counterfactuals to the triumphalist narratives of, of Singapore and South Korea's um, you know, development. Um, uh, I, I, I sort of frame the chapter with a bit of a debate that I that I draw from Pek Nak Chong, the the Korean uh, critic, uh, where he's written about um, the problem of the meritorious dictator, and I think that's such a great phrase and a kind of problem to work with. And this is the problem, you know, what do you do when you've had a a dictator or an illiberal leader, uh, you know, in the case of Lee Kuan Yew in Singapore, you know, who who uh, has has brought so much wealth and prosperity. Um, you know, uh, Peck Nak-chung writes about the way that can lead, on the one hand, to uh, nostalgia, and, you know, we certainly see that. I mean, with Lee Kuan Yew's passing, you know, a few years ago, um, you know, sort of massive nostalgia um, for, for, the, for the father of Singapore and so on. Um, but it also can lead to a, what, what um, Peck describes as a kind of ledger book approach where you sort of have two columns of it. To, to assess a dictatorship, you know, the, the pros and the cons, you know, the successes here, the human rights abuses there. Um, and, and he says, actually, we, we need to get beyond that approach. We need to really look at the connections of, you know, political repression, um, you know, the effect on civil society um, and economic development, how they work together. And that's why I think these figures of anachronism are really so poignant because they they tie that together for us. They remain, as I said, sort of unresolved uh, kind of chunks <laughs> of, uh, of this Cold War repression, uh, but in the present or in close to the present. Absolutely. And then the... Um... I think we could, um, you know, take the, um, the the this idea of you know having a, an open and unresolved assessment, um, right, about um, or through other uh, genres as well, and also talking about other countries in, in East Asia, right, that um, kind of went through through a similar maybe um, type of, of development, but you know the. Um, the human rights aspect, or maybe you know the the accelerated development that touched most of most people, but not all, right? Or you know all sorts of um, political changes, right? That um, led to um, you know different results. Um, so um, I think it's uh, it's a quite important idea of the unresolved type of, of assessment. Um, that we see in these um, in, in the film, but also in in, in literature, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Exactly. You know, and I mean, one thing I don't talk about particularly in the book, except you know, uh, you know, I kind of wedged it in it right at the end. But I think you know, we, we also have to think, of, you know, the the jury is still out on these models of development, and and when we think about 
the environmental impacts of this kind of accelerated uh, modernization, industrialization, rapid uh, urbanization, you know, which I discussed more in my first book. Um, you know, we, we, you're right. These are, these are, these are um, unresolved, you know, I think. Right. Yeah. And, you know, also the um, all the ethical, you know, questions that that come um, out of it. And with that, we we get a bit more more details in Chapter five entitled Killing Communists, Transnational Justice and the Making of the Post-Cold War. And here uh, the chapter discusses the intricacies of transnational justice and its attainability through genres of truth commissions. And Joshua Oppenheimer's The Act of Killing and Han Kang's Human Act centered the chapter and continued the previous chapter's analysis, as you, you mentioned, um, uh, right, that for the previous question, on the ways in which the present still needs to reckon with the past. And what are some of the key elements in Oppenheimer's and Kang's work that underline the haunting effects anti-communism has on the post-Cold War um, era? But also, you know, the I found that the act of killing the film, it's haunting itself, um, I don't know, as a, as a, a cultural product. Um, so, you know, I'm just going to leave you with those yeah, questions. Yeah. <laughs> um, yes. Oh, my gosh. That is it is just such a it's such an amazing film but um you know i i'm at, I'm at the point where i'm not sure if i can teach it anymore because it is so disturbing and haunting yes. as you say um but i'll 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 say to begin that uh this was a kind of uh a, i had to say enjoyable i mean the material is so grim and depressing um but this was a really fascinating chapter to write it's actually my favorite chapter of the book if i'm allowed to say that i don't know if we're allowed to say that is that like saying you have a, have a favorite child or something but um, no, we are. <laughs> but, uh, it was you know because um i think because of the texts you know as you already said um but also because i think transitional justice is just so so fascinating and complicated to think through. Uh, I hadn't really thought about transitional justice in the beginning when I, you know, started writing this book. But uh, the act of killing um, uh, Oppenheimer's uh, film from 2012, um, Jagal in, in Indonesia, um, and also Han Gang's novel Human Acts, uh, Sonyoni Onda in Korean from 2014. You know, they really invite uh, this kind of reading, and I was really uh, taken by a lot of the scholarship on transitional ju- transnational sorry transitional justice and uh, and its temporalities you know and how that relates to the Cold War um, so I mean yeah just before I get into the argument let me just very briefly for those who haven't seen act of killing first of all you have to see it um, but it's a really remarkable documentary uh, um, co-directed by, I mean, it was it's a Joshua Oppenheimer film, but um, co-directed by anonymous Indonesian um, uh, filmmakers. Uh, so, you know, we have to keep in mind the level of repression and censorship that still exists um, in Indonesia today around the 1965-66 uh, massacres, which which it is, um, uh, which is the topic of the film. Um, and in that film, you know, it's so disturbing because it's about the killers. It's presented from the killers' point of view, um, and it invites them to to create reenactments reenactments of the of the murders. Um, uh, Han Gang's Human Acts uh, is a novel inspired by the true events of, of the Kwangju uprising, which I've already mentioned a few times. Um, 
And I think what you know what, what drew what what made me put them together is that both I think are texts that tackle the problem of collective memory um, uh, and atrocity uh, in instances of these anti-communist uh, uh, sort of uh, state violence, sort of these these incredible moments, um, and and how we have to think about the the, the difficulties of thinking that specificity of anti-communist violence within uh, the frameworks of transitional justice. Um, so let me let me just say a bit more about that. Um, um, you know, transitional justice, you know, has become a very kind of popular theme and topic since, since the, the 90s, I think. Um, you know, and it frames the chapter because uh, it's, um, it's often theorised as a way to reconcile the authoritarian past with a post-authoritarian present. And, and often, you know, in the area that I'm looking at, this means a Cold War authoritarianism or a dictatorship with a post-Cold War liberal state. Um, and I think that's what's really tricky here um, because they're both dealing with these past atrocities um, committed by, um, you know, uh, these sort of Cold War developmental states. Um, um, but what you have is really, you know, in a, in a historical frame, uh, a kind of ideological defeat of communism um, around the world, you know, as we said, said to be ended, you know, 1989 or 1991. Um, but uh, the fact that that ideological death uh, is actually underwritten by the concrete killings of communists in places like East and Southeast Asia. Um, so what I mean, of course, is, you know, Margaret Thatcher famously says, you know, the, the Cold War ended without a shot fired. Um, and these texts show the lie to that, of the, the quote-unquote bloodless victory of capitalism, you know, in the Cold War. They show the incredibly violent forces uh, that, you know, resulted from anti-communist repression um, and that took you know, took place in largely in the post-colonial and, and third world. So there's sort of a disjuncture in in, also in the way that they have to represent this sort of um, kind of uh, notion of transitional justice. And I, and I use this as a frame because I think both of the texts themselves borrow uh, a lot of the tropes uh, from transitional justice. So there's there's truth telling, there's witnessing, uh, there's narratives of atrocities, um, there's the desire for reconciliation, moving through, uh, you know, moving on. Um, you know, I'm, I'm, and I'm using some of those uh, terms from Priscilla Hayner's work on um, uh, in uh, unspeakable truths. Um, um, so, you know, and, and, and at the aesthetic level, I think the texts sort of have a difficult task. They have to grapple with a kind of continuity between uh, a past atrocity, the actual killing of communists or suspected communists, um, and this, uh, this larger idea uh, where, where history has confirmed, you know, the necessary death of communism itself. Um, I, I, I draw... Uh, partly from Honik Kwon again and, and his book, The Other Cold War, has been so important um, for, for my project, and also Lisa Yonayama's excellent work, uh, Cold War Ruins. Um, and they, you know, both helped me to think about how the violence against communists uh, is all but impossible to acknowledge in the arrangement 
of what she calls Cold War justice. You know, in this version of justice, of course, uh, it's the US, it's liberal capitalism that are the unambiguous uh, victors um, of both World War I and, you know, the Cold War. So what I, what I try to get at is how there's a sort of tautology at the heart of transitional justice in places that have transitioned from an anti-communist uh, uh, violence. Um, and, uh, yeah, so, you know, I mean, I, I hope that makes sense. I, it's hard to reproduce, you know, the, the exact readings. Um, but, I, but I will just say, you know, um, uh, for example, what I mean by that uh, in the Oppenheimer films you know, we we get this real discomfort between the the violence of the killings uh, and the heroism of the killers, which is still uh, maintained even in you know in 2012. You know, even till relatively recent. You know, in Indonesian society, uh, in Han Gang's novel, even though she sort of beautifully and lyrically presents the suffering and trauma um, of those you know involved in uh, in Guangzhou. Um, there's also this weird sort of inability to actually name um, the leftists or the communists as such. Um, so there's sort of a, a shying away. And I think both of these uh, strange sort of aesthetic moves is really about, you know, the, the difficulty of, of naming uh, from our present uh, liberal sort of hegemonic moment of capitalism, you know, what it meant to to actually kill these communists. Um, I also, uh, you know, want to just mention a book which I, I didn't read until after I'd finished. I think it just came out um, around the same time, Vincent Bevan's book, The Jakarta Method, um, journalist. But, uh, you know, he he it's a really fascinating book um, which goes into the way, uh, the you know, the strategic murder and, and mass killings of uh, communists and suspected communists in places like Indonesia and Brazil during the Cold War uh, actually were foundational to setting up, uh, you know, a capitalist win, if you like, um, you know, in the Cold War overall. Um, so, yeah, so that's sort of what I try to do there. I'll just add a couple of really quick things too just about this chapter. Um uh, and one of the reasons I, I found it such a, you know, perhaps the most interesting one to write, um, you know, which is also that transitional justice is a, a kind of a genre of, of a legal genre um, that has that that is transnational. Um, I got a lot out of reading South African scholars um, writing on the the Truth and Reconciliation Commission there, especially around this notion of the grammar of transition, um, which is sort of this contradictory idea of, you know, reconciling the past to the present, um, you know, suturing together, you know, in order for the nation to go on. What does that mean if the nation, you know, is sort of the, the capitalist, uh, you know, uh, uh, engine of the nation was actually built on the violence that, that the transitional justice is supposed to, uh, you know, acknowledge. Uh, and the other thing I think was interesting was uh, also looking at um, um Latin American historian Greg Grandin's work on what he calls uh, global anti-communism, um, you know, which to me brought in really interesting parallels between Asia and Latin America in this period, um, you know, and and I think this is work that really needs to be there needs to be more of this kind of work, you know, thinking across uh, you know continents um, and different sites uh, that 
that of course have to, you know very different colonial post-colonial conditions and histories um, but often we see uh, a lot of the same um, formations um, you know happening at this moment sure and I totally encourage that work and I hope uh, you know the next years will will bring more you know from you but also you know from from others um, out um, and you know if I may I may continue a little bit with the the the, the recommendation or the titles um, I also found difficult but very very interesting uh, Oppenheimer's uh, next piece the look of silence that is somehow a commentary in some sort of way on the act of killing um and then this idea of of looking and you know the 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 people who participated in the killing of communists are losing their 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 sight right now and you know like he follows this this doctor around who is trying to talk to them about um, what they did while providing glasses, uh, eyeglasses for them. Um, that you know, it was an interesting metaphor. Um, and also, the, the the silence is very, very um, you know, uncomfortable in that in that piece. Um, so um, yeah, but um, you know, just to to go back on um, go back to the book, um, I wanted to to mention the epilogue, uh, authoritarian lessons for neoliberal times uh, that argues for a more intense or conscientious cult, uh, cultural and political recognition of the ambivalence rooted in the capitalist development um, and developmental state, and brings clarity to the entanglements between Cold War decolonization and the surge in neoliberal capitalist policies and regimes in in Asia, as you mentioned before. And, you know, I just wanted to invite you to say a bit more about the films uh, analyzed here and uh, the way, actually it's one film, um, the way it's masterful masterfully suggested uh, ambivalence and, you know, the role that played, um, you know, in, in history. Yeah, thank you. Um, uh, and well, actually, before I talk about the the film, let me just say a little bit about you know the, the question of neoliberalism, which we already touched on um, before. Um, but I, I think you know this is this is one of the book's uh, probably more ambitious arguments, and and it really sort of I mean it's it's not fully fleshed out. I, I kind of got to it in the in the epilogue, but it's really about how our current neoliberal order not just in Asia but more broadly, has, has a lot to do with these development developmental paths that we've been discussing. You know, they've especially because they've been much imitated, um, you know, around the global south. Um, and a point that I actually make in the introduction is, is I mean, for example, to, to show this, is, uh, you know, Singapore's model of illiberal kind of economic development, it, it has really mattered beyond the region because its representatives kept showing up at non-alignment conferences, you know, through the 80s. Um, but in order to uh, to tout their own path to prosperity, uh, and, I'm, and I'm quoting from Vijay Prashad's um, account here, um, so, you know, and rejected import substitution uh, and anti-imperialist cooperation, which were then the typical paths of third world development, you know, at the time, through the seventies and, and early eighties, at least. So, so the fact that Singapore, South Korea, you know, Taiwan, they become kind of credible models of a different kind of uh, of capitalist development. Um, that it's not about rejecting the global capitalist order and uh, and you know, and its imperialist kind of. Uh, 
um, uh, centers and peripheries. Um, you know, that that has really helped me think about decolonization as a, as a central driver of neoliberal reforms. Um, and also I'll just mention um, two books that, that really helped me think through this, which I, you know, we're really grateful to read, Quinn's Libidians Globalists on, on the History of Neoliberal Thought and Adon Getachew's Study of Anti-Colonial Worldmaking. Um, you know, and, and, and what, what, they, what they helped me see was the way Cold War anti-communist, anti-communist violence uh, and the developmental models of, of East and Southeast Asia were really key pre- preconditions for the rise of neoliberalism uh, with its emphasis on market logic, foreign investment, uh, you know, uh, free trade, or what Slovenian calls uh, the sovereignty of capitalism. And, and what shouldn't be surprising to us is that this kind of capitalist-oriented rationality works extremely well with authoritarian governance. Um, so the broader story is that places like Singapore, Indonesia, South Korea, and so on, you know, helped make the world safe for, for capitalism by eliminating the, the communist option, um, but also by eliminating, you know, alternative um, a third worldist paths to development, you know, and and in that sense, they're part of really a story of the broader rollback of, of third worldist demands for solidarity and, and self determination, you know. Um, so you know, so that's just kind of how I how I position that question of neoliberalism and authoritarianism, you know, in the epilogue. Um, let me just really quickly talk about how the film f- fits into all this. Um, so, Ode to My Father, Kuk Te Shijang, directed by Yun Jae-kyun um, in 2014. This was a, a massive blockbuster success in South Korea. Uh, it's still one of the most highly grossing films, um, although it was relatively little known abroad. So in that sense, it kind of bucks the trend of, you know, K-drama and K-films, you know, it wasn't especially popular abroad. Um, and I think that's because it tells a really nationalist story. It's sort of a rags-to-riches portrayal of South Korea's development um, told through the character of um, a North Korean refugee uh, who ends up with his family in Busan after the war uh, and kind of, you know, struggles um, through all these different jobs and, and, and challenges. Um, so in one sense, we could also say it's sort of a narration of the developmental state um, uh, told, you know, through this figure of, of, the, um, of the North Korean refugee. Uh, he becomes a migrant labourer in West Germany in the 60s, uh, and then he also gets sent to South, sorry, to Vietnam uh, in the 70s to work for a South Korean uh, military supplier. So it's also a transnational story. Um, there's also a, a transnational adoption at the end, which is, you know, very interesting. Um, but I think what's really interesting is that... Um, you know, on the one hand, it shows us these, uh, you know, uh, incredibly violent, um, sometimes horrifying personal and historical links that the Cold War produces. Um, you know, keep in mind, South Korea provided the second largest number of uh, of troops to fight in Vietnam after the US. Um, and it also theorizes this kind of promotional development um, uh, that accords with a kind of triumphalist national history, um, but also a neoliberal bootstrapping 
account of you know hard work and capitalist accumulation but but what you see in the film is is, is basically south korea kind of rising through the ranks you know where and there are these moments of repetition so while you know in the 60s he's working in um uh in in germany as a as a guest worker you know um, terrible conditions working in a mine uh you know by the end of the film he's or by the end of the narrative it's actually you know diegetically uh not linear um uh, you know, as an old man, he's now in South Korea witnessing the same kinds of racist taunts to uh, South Asian and Southeast Asian migrant workers, uh, you know, in Busan. Uh, and he feels, you know, he sort of has this moment of recognition that that, that was Korea, you know, 50 years ago or 60 years ago. Um, so there's something, you know, there's something deeply conservative about the message of the film. It's, you know, I think, you know, it was widely criticised for sort of that nostalgia we already talked about, the meritorious dictator, although it doesn't mention the dictatorship at all, remarkably, um, but it's sort of, you know, about the the heroism and, and um, acknowledging and, and lionising the, the hard work of that generation. But at the affective level, um, the film is really ambivalent. You know, it, it, it is an absolute tearjerker um, and it doesn't quite reconcile, you know, the the trials uh, of this family, you know, of the, of the nation's striving, you know, with a kind of... Um, um, you know, triumphalist story, which I think it's supposed to be telling as well. Um, so that's sort of what, you know, what drew me to that film. Um, you know, it, it has a, it has a, again, a kind of a, a troubled aesthetic, you know, that's trying to contain all of these uh, contradictions at once. It's a lot to try to, to contain, right? Uh, but fascinating nonetheless. And um, I think, uh, you know, it's, some, it's something to consider for, you know, film classes or, you know, introduction to, to topics like, like this. Maybe, you know, um, some of our listeners would, would find it, um, you know, uh, fitting for, for such a class. Um, but we, we have taken a lot of your time and I wanted to ask whether there's something you wanted to add to, uh, to our conversation that we haven't touched on before you know whether there's something in the book that you know uh, we kind of brushed past and um you know you wanted to add yeah yeah um just briefly a couple of things i just wanted to mention the the book's um comparative methodology so uh you know this is pretty clear by now we've been talking about it but it was really important to me that the book be comparative and uh you know, most of the chapters bring together texts and contexts from from a different combinations of the four sites, um, and that was partly because I wanted to think about uh, this conjuncture as a as a regional formation of political rule, um, but also because. Uh, and, and, you know, and here I'm following the work of, of Chen Quanxing and his Asia as method, you know, um, the, the, the effort, the need to do more into Asia comparative work. Um, too often, I think, you know, we, 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 we compare with the West, um, you know, especially when we're thinking of authoritarianism. As I said, you know, this is not, this is not the place that has you know traditionally been the site of theorizing um, you know political formation. So um, so that was one thing just to just to mention. Um, I also think there's not enough work being done comparing um, you know 
what's often sometimes called Northeast Asia with Southeast Asia. I think, you know, that's also really interesting. And I was struck, you know, looking, for example, in that last chapter with South Korea and, and Indonesia, you know, how many parallels there are you know, to be drawn. Um, uh, and then just very finally, I think, you know, one question that has come up around the book is, uh, you know, how does it help us understand our current uh, land political landscape when we seem to be living in a moment of kind of resurgent authoritarianism um, you know uh, and any number of invocations of you know the new cold war the second cold war and, and things like that so partly you know I hope my book can shed light on some of the historical reasons why we're seeing this you know I also don't argue that we're in a second world war I think that the first cold war hasn't ended yet <laughs> um, but I also think, you know, um, the question of uh, authoritarianism and neoliberalism uh, is, the, is, is where we need to look at this. Um, Wendy Brown's, uh, you know, really great book, uh, In the Ruins of Neoliberalism, you know, really elegantly sort of diagnoses the way neoliberalism, uh, you know, hollows out. Um, you know, various forms of, of democracy and, and collectivity. But I think, you know, there's still, we often still hear this sort of idea like, oh, you know, we have this, we're in this resurgent authoritarianism, you know, it had gone away for, you know, 60 years or whatever, 70 years since the end of World War II. But I think if, you know, one thing that I think I hope the book does is by centering Asia, you know, in this account, um, you know, we see that it's not the case that authoritarianism has suddenly come back after a long absence. You know, in fact, you know, what we've seen is a really kind of robust pairing of, 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 of capitalism and illiberalism for a good chunk of, um, of the histories of, of these post-colonial nations. So I think that's something worth thinking about. Absolutely. And I totally agree that authoritarianism or, you know, illiberal ruling or governance has not, you know, went away and then came back, you know, sneaked back in. Um, I think um, it's definitely more more complex than that, as as you said. Um, but, you know, um, I think the, the conversation can go, you know, longer than this. But I'm really curious to know, um, you know, about your projects. What are you working on right now? Yeah, so I'm I'm in the early stages of a of a new project. Um, uh, it has I haven't it has. Uh global anti-communism in the title um, and um, mobilities of the of the trans-pacific something like that <clears throat> but what I'm interested in thinking about drawing you know bringing carrying through some of this this work is how uh, anti-communism you know during the Cold War period has really shaped uh, migration reams, regimes I'm sorry um, and uh, you know policies of um, immigration bordering uh, detention, uh, and these sorts of practices, especially in the Asia Pacific region, um, you know, going back to questions of, uh, you know, repatriation of Koreans from Japan, which was enormously difficult, you know, like the, the split between North and South Korea. Um, but of course, uh, the Indo-Chinese refugee crisis uh, in the 70s and 80s. Um, so, you know, and thinking about uh, the way narratives of uh, refuge, of exile, um, and of immigration, uh, you know, play, you know, ha- what, what they can teach us um, about, uh, you know, these, this, this uh, co- you know, configuration. Uh, but yeah, as I said, it's still early days on that. 
<laughs> well, looking forward to it, mm-hmm. and you know, <laughs> I'm sure it will um, it will find a lot of very very interesting archives, and you know, will bring back the question of, of genre, right? Of of writing in that particular case, right? Of migration, exile, and uh, repatriation uh, sometimes. But you know, I I'm really looking forward to that, and I want to thank you again for joining us today. And, you know, hope to to interview you back in the near future. Thank you so much, Victoria. This was a real pleasure. And I look forward to reading your work too. (laughs) Thank you.